Welcome to the James Quandall Show, the space where I have conversations with the world's experts and share how you can live your life to the fullest and build the life of your dreams. Today's guest is Bill George, currently a Harvard Business School professor, former CEO of Medtronic, which under his leadership grew from 1.1 billion to 60 billion, averaging 35% growth per year. Bill is also the author of Discover Your True North in the new Emerging Leader Edition of True North, which we will discuss today. During this episode, Bill explains why it's important to have unscheduled time slots on your calendar and how during that time you can focus on introspection. He shares that the average leader is spending over 70% of their time in meetings and what they should be doing instead with that time. We discuss the importance of understanding the values of the individuals you work with and how to determine if your values align. And we talked about having an integrated life, where you're the same person at home, work, in your church, and in your community. Finally, we discuss quiet quitting, remote work, our focus on bachelor's degrees, and how we need to encourage more individuals to follow their passions into trades and other fields. We discussed all of this and so much more during our conversation, so please sit back and enjoy the show. And send me a message with your thoughts at James Quandaw on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow and share this episode with a friend. We were talking sort of about the, the boomer generation. And one of the things that I loved about your book, and I'll make sure I link to the book in the show notes and so everyone can pick up a copy. But you talked a lot about integrated life. And you not only had a designated chapter about it, but you also talked about it in each chapter when you would talk about your meditation practices and having unscheduled time on the calendar and introspection time and not always being in meetings. You kind of peppered it through the entire book, which showed me how important it is. But do you feel like the the, the little bit uh, more mature generation gets it? Do they get that work-life balance and why it's important? I don't think so. I think the uh, boomer generation, which has been in charge for 30 years and have had their day, so to speak, uh, doesn't. I think they feel a lot of them raised in a fairly uh, sexist environment where, you know, the men do the work and the women take care of the kids. And that's not today's work at all. I mean, everyone, two career families. Uh, and so I think the whole game has changed. But they don't understand that people do want a life. I mean, why shouldn't they? Why I want a life, you know, and I want to raise two kids. And now I want to spend time with grandkids. And yeah. And uh, but I actually, I think the key thing people are missing that if you have an integrated life, you become a better leader. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to work 80, 90, 100 hours a week, you're going to overmanage, you're going to underdelegate, and you're going to drive some people nuts. And you're not going to have time to step back and have perspective. You mentioned meditation. I think some form of introspective practice where you take time, you know, maybe you go for a long walk or a jog or something where you kind of clear your head of all the taskless items. And really think about, hey, how did I show up today? Was I doing what I really loved to do? Did I feel fulfilled? Was I a good leader? Did I treat people well? Uh, And really think about those things because I think that makes you a better leader. But just, oh, I've got 18 things I've got to get done today. And I'm going to put everything to get it done. I'm going to have 20 meetings to run through. You know, it doesn't work. And the problem with that is... That may work for that leader for a time period, for a spell during a certain season, but they have people working with them 
that may not want to work like that. And it's really hard to feel like you're not working as hard as your leader is. And so yeah. people are going to work just as hard as you until they burn themselves out. Well, the obvious coming out of COVID, burnout's a huge, burnout's a huge thing, but I think it was a big thing before. I think people are burning themselves. Look, I write in the book, leadership is a long journey. You know, you start out sometime in your early 20s and you go through your 60s, but there are a lot of ups and downs. You're out, you're out natural in the mountains, but you know, you get to the top of one mountain, you got to go down and get up to the next one. And you know, sometimes you fall down that mountain. Sometimes you lose your job. Sometimes you wake up one morning, like I did when I was a honeywell and say, hmm, I am totally unhappy. You know, I really don't love this and I got to make a change. And I think that's a good thing. You know, I don't think it's a bad thing. People used to call in my parents' generation, we called people like that job hoppers. And I would say, no, come on. You got to do what you love. You only have one life to live. You know, how you feel about reincarnation? You got one life on this earth to live as James. And why don't you want to grab for all the joy you can find? You know, yeah, we want to do great work. We want to have a great family. We want to be engaged in things. You want to have time for travel and vacations. Uh, and I think to sacrifice all that. I remember one older person uh, told me when I was getting out of high school, a friend of my father's, you know, my grad daughter graduated from high school with you last week, and I realized I, I don't know my daughter. I've never spent any time with her. Now, what a tragedy that would be, you know? Uh, so it's a big generational change. But I think the problem is, is that unfortunately, a lot of baby boomers look at to a lot of the millennials as slackers. You know, well, they don't want to work that hard. I actually say they want to work when they want to in their own time. They get the job done. They're professionals. Give them a job to do and see how they perform. I feel another thing I've heard a lot of is that my generation isn't loyal to the companies and the prior generations could work there for 30 years and they were proud to where you talked about it. My generation may work at 10 companies, 15 companies in their lifetime. Is that like, is it loyalty? Like, do you need to be loyal to a company your entire life to be a good, good worker or a good leader? When I was coming out of school, a lot of people went to work for AT&T and their father's had and, you know, worked for 40 years and got their 40-year pin and retired. It worked for GE. And uh, the problem is the loyalty was not a two-way street. GE created a lot of loyalty from their employees, but they didn't give it back. And they got laid off. Or even worse, interesting enough, they worked for that 40 years and they, they took away the regular pension. They put it in a 401k and then they took the dividend to one penny. So you had your whole retirement savings wiped out by somebody that overspent buying back stock, a guy named Jeff Emil. And so, yeah, I, I, well, it was a two-way street. I want to create an environment, James, where you love working at Medtronic so much and you're so passionate and we give you the freedom to go invent things. You're a creative guy. You're inventing all kinds of ideas. And I want to make it so much fun that you're loyal, not to us, but to the customers we're serving, in this case, patients. So that's what we want to create. And yeah, I think people with different experiences, I actively tell, I was just with a group of young men coming, women coming out of college. And I said, yeah, you know, take that job, go be an entrepreneur, take that job with Microsoft. You'll learn a lot, but you're not going to be there the rest of your life. You know that. So get the experience early. It's okay. Not okay. It's good. Get that and look at different companies. I worked as uh, summer jobs, admittedly, not full time, but I worked for uh, Procter & Gamble, I'm not dropping names, but Coca-Cola and IBM. Boy, I learned a lot from the companies. I didn't wind up with any of the three, but I sure learned a lot. So why not have those experiences? Today it would be Amazon, Google, and uh, Microsoft. 
I thought it was interesting in your book when you talked about your father and how he was living vicariously through you as a child and said, you're going to go work at Procter & Gamble or IBM or one of these guys. So he was sort of right. Not only that, he was, you're going to be CEO. I mean, I, that was when I was 10 or nine. Can you imagine? That was a pretty heavy trip for a kid. You know, I want you to be CEO of this company. See, it wasn't just uh, work there. It was, uh, you have to be in charge. And, uh, you know, that was, like I said, that was, uh, I kind of forgot about it. But he did plant those messages subliminally. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I'm pushing him away, turning to my mother, because he's working so much and playing golf the rest of the time. And I never saw him. So, but I, I, I took those messages in subliminally. Do you think if you had wanted to, you could have went and became CEO of one of those companies? Yeah, I, that's immodest, but yes. I just worked with a lot of CEOs. Those guys. You have to have breaks. You have to be there a long time. I get all that. But I can tell you that most difficult time in my life is I was en route to be CEO of Honeywell. Great global company. I've been president of Honeywell Europe. They keep giving me a series of turnarounds. I'm a growth guy. I like. I know how to lay off a thousand people, five thousand people, cut you know several hundred million in costs. I know how to do that, but that's not how I want to spend my life. So, but I am en route to the top, and I started grabbing for the brass ring. You know, I kind of lost sight of who I was, and it was pretty ugly for other people. I, I couldn't see it, but other people could see it. And uh, you know, one day I was driving home, and I'd been in these turnarounds for like six years, three different sets of businesses. And sets, I mean, like nine divisions, three groups, Oof. and just managing numbers. I like to be out with customers and employees. That's what I had done before, but I did after. But anyway, I'm driving home. I look at myself in the mirror, and I see a miserable person, me. <laughs> How can you be miserable? We have, I had a great marriage. My wife, Penny, two kids, one in high school and junior high, lots of friends, on the route to the top. Except, hey, I didn't love myself. I didn't love traveling 75% of the time. Uh and I wasn't excited about the business. I wasn't interested in valves in the boiler room. It was just chasing numbers. And so uh, I had to get overcome the ego of running a large company. And so that's when I, I turned down Medtronic, actually, probably too small for my ego at the time. So I called the CEO back and said, is the job still open? And said, well, if you I fill it, you can get in line. Because I'd turned him down four months before. And uh, best thing that ever happened. Yeah, it was the Mid-sized company, seven hundred fifty million. Not small, but mid-sized, and uh, we're fortunate to grow. Didn't I? Didn't anticipate that kind of growth. It's pretty uncommon that an opportunity knocks once. It's super uncommon for it to come knocking more than once, as it did in that case for you. At one point, did you look at it as divine intervention in any way? Of like, hey, this opportunity is still here. Like, why was it still there? Like, how is that? Doesn't usually happen. I don't know. Some people were very nice to me and gave me the shot. I took look at very serious before I went to Honeywell, and that's when I made the quote big company decision because it's the same position I joined uh, ten and a half years later. So the job hadn't changed. Number two, president, chief out, different CEO, but uh, the job hadn't changed. Company got a little bit bigger, but had a lot of problems. So, but I think the key thing for me, it's the important thing is what do you want out of life? Okay. Is, why is it important to be head of a mega company? You know, you may not even enjoy your life if you do that. <clears throat> you may not have time for family, for travel, to live where you want to be, you know? And so I think that's what everyone, I encourage everyone to read this book, really think about those questions. What kind of life do I want? Because you, right, you're the, as Warren Bennett said, you're the author of your own life. Don't think, oh, I'm a victim. 
heard Jeff M. Somebody's heard Jeff M. L. Speak the other day. Somebody about how he was a victim. 9-11 hit him and it hurt GE. <clears throat> Fukushima power plant went down and it hurt GE. Hey, man, you got to get out of it. I was with uh, a man who's blind since uh, he was 21 years old. Chad Foster was in my book. He says, uh, you know, he wanted to live your life being a victim. He's a vision. He says, here, I want to help other people. You know, okay, bad things happen, but I figure out I can deal with it. Okay, I can't see, but I can do a lot of other things. I can speak. I can give talks. I can inspire you to make some of your life. You may not be blind, but you may be so blind you can't see where you're going. That makes sense. And do you feel like the ground rules, when you were kind of taking over, the job did you write down ground rules or was it just a discussion between you and penny or, or how did that look uh good question because i did work pretty hard first 90 days and i worked hard all along but i did travel a lot and uh yeah we talked about it a lot what we want out of life time with our sons see part of my backstory is i love my father but he was never there he traveled four days a week as a consultant he'd go 27 miles to downtown chicago on fridays and he'd leave home at 7.30 and Saturdays and Sundays, he'd go play golf. We'd see him at 3.30 or 4. So I never was with my father. He, I'd travel on vacation with my mother and he'd fly down immediately. So I didn't want that for my own kids. I wanted to spend a lot of time with my kids. I coached their soccer teams for 12 years while I was uh, EVP of Medtronic and CEO of, uh, excuse me, EVP of Honeywell and CEO of Medtronic. So I just had to take time out. People Honeywell thought it was a little weird. I had to leave a meeting at 5.30. Well, I got a practice at 6. I got to get to the field, change clothes. And if I tell these kids they got to be there by 6 or they run laps, I got to get there too. So, uh, <laughs> you know, but I love that experience. I'm just saying I wouldn't give it up for anything. I don't think my sons would either. It was always their teams, but still, we had wonderful experiences. And I think of the leaders in my life that were influential and – they were the ones who practiced what they preached. You can't say, oh, you need to have an integrated life and then be in the office till 10 p.m. every single day, yeah. right? I mean, you can't, you can say it, but your employees aren't going to believe you. And I think by you leaving and going and doing what was also important kind of shows that to people. My son went to a very large consulting firm and they would work on PowerPoint charts. That's what they were selling their clients. And he, he said he had to be there at 10 or 11 every night because the partner might come in to check the charts because they're going to see a client the next day. And you know, that's no way for him to live. And so he rejected that whole life. But yeah, I think, you know, I think the important thing for everyone listening in, James, what kind of life do you want? Are you, are you consciously setting it? I used to say to students at HBS, never sell your soul to the man. And they didn't like that phrase. And by the man, I meant the corporate, the corporation, you know, the power of most of them were men, by the way, yeah, 20 years ago. But, you know, don't don't give up your life because you're selling out to some all powerful company and you think they're going to you're going to have a great life. You can have a great life, but you don't have to kill yourself. And by the way, again, I think you're a better leader and you're more productive when you're having a well-rounded life. See, it's not that, oh, I'm sacrificing my work because I want to have a good life. Some people did that in my generation. Now, I think you can do both. Mm hmm. For me, the 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 time that I have the biggest breakthroughs for my work is not spending more time trying to solve the problem. It's actually getting away from the problem and taking a long walk and maybe with a notepad in my pocket. And then if something comes to me on that walk, I write it down and run back home with the solution to all my problems. But it's actually in that time of solitude or quiet that it actually 
comes to me. Yeah, it's like that whiteboard. You got to clean that whole whiteboard back there. And if you got a list of 30 things you got to get done today, you won't do that. And so I thought a lot about this in Medtronic. How are people creative? You know, you're a creative person, but you're not creative just following a task list. So you, you need to have that solitude. You need to reflect a little bit. That's where creativity comes from. And uh, so that's why I, I'm a big, big believer in that. And then, you know, I mean, I, a lot of people met try the engineers, they had labs in their home. They you know, start fooling around <laughs> in the lab at 8.30 after dinner, you know, not because they were under pressure, just because they were excited about it. Was it difficult for you to transition into the company that was more medically driven and making pacemakers at that time? And I mean, a lot of the science behind it. I knew nothing about medicine. I didn't know anything about the science, but I knew a lot about engineering and a lot about high tech. I've been in high tech industries, but this was a different kind of high tech. And uh, so what I did, instead of having the engineers teach me the business, I did some of that. But I really went in and worked with the doctors to see what worked, what didn't work. And they'll tell you, if the doctor's unhappy with their product, they'll tell you. And just ask them and just watch them do a open heart surgery, watching them plant a defibrillator or do a neurological surgery. And that's where I really learned the business. So I saw about 700 to 1,000 procedures. So I spent a lot of time doing that. I see now so many executives spending all their time in meetings, 75% of their time or 72% hmm. sitting in meetings. And, you know, the average meeting is an hour and a half. Why does it have to be an hour and a half? What, 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 why not? I learned more walking into the engineering labs, walking around the hall, asking people what they were up to, uh, sitting on a lunch counter, talking to a group of uh, lunch uh, rooms, sitting, talking to a group of production workers. That's where I learned what was going on. And I think a lot of big corporate people are getting isolated from their own people. And it's a huge mistake. One of my mentors at Best Buy, one of the one of the leaders that brought me in, his name was AJ, and he had this this hour of power, is what he called it. He would mm -hmm. show up in the building, and he wouldn't go check his email. He wouldn't go check the numbers. He wouldn't go sit down in the office. He would hang his jacket up and go and high five and handshake every employee in the building and just say, "How you doing today?" And so you knew when he was in the building, and if you needed something. He was there. He didn't have a lot of problems that showed up in his email because he handled things face to face before they became problems. And that always really stuck with me. Great. And uh, one of the people I'm closest to is Hubert Jolie, who was former CEO of Best Buy. It's really interesting. Best Buy, when he took over, had severe financial problems. I mean, they were not doing well. They were kind of, they weren't going out of business, but they were moving that way. So what do you do? Instead of going to headquarters and sorting out these problems, he spent his first week in St. Cloud, Minnesota. And he just put on a, a blue shirt, you know about that, and it said CEO in training. And he just <laughs> walked around talking to customers, supervisors, first line employees, saying, you know, understanding the business. Hey, tell me about this. How's this work? And, uh, you know, it's amazing. He said to me, he said, Bill, I learned more. And that first week, and he go out for dinner with the supervisor and store managers like you were. But anyway, and get their opinions. He said, I learned more in that week. I learned everything I had needed to know to turn on Best Buy. He knew exactly what the problems were. He didn't have to have a group of statistical analysis. He wasn't even looking at stats. He was looking at the customer, why they weren't buying, or how the process worked, or how commissions worked, or all that. I can say from being in the field during that, how much that meant to us to see him in an actual store. Because at that point, even our territory leadership and our district leadership wasn't in the stores very much. They were in their offices. And <laughs> yeah. so seeing the CEO in a store 
carrying TVs out to the car, that sent a message across the entire company. And then the other thing he did, and anyone listening that is interested in turnarounds, this was fantastic. And I've, I've taken this and stolen this and used it before, since I've seen this. He put out a notice to the entire company. And it didn't matter if you were an occasional seasonal hire just there for Black Friday or if you've been there 10 years like me. He said, send me an email with anything crazy, goofy, or stupid that you see happening and we'll look into it. And he got thousands and thousands and thousands of emails of broken processes from the actual people that had to deal with it every day. And when he went in and started, and I know he didn't do it all himself, but when he empowered the people that worked with him to solve those problems, we started rolling. Yeah. You know, when you're at the corporate headquarters and the bigger the company, the more of this is true, you're sitting policy, you're putting regulations, you're putting rules out there that are extremely cumbersome when you get to the store level. And so what matters? You know, if I go into a Best Buy store, highly unlikely I'm going to see the CEO or other executives. So my whole impression of it are the salespeople I meet. Probably don't beat the store manager. My whole, I mean, unless he's very customer-oriented, or she is. But the people I, I get the impression of frontline employees. You think of any business, restaurants, airlines, you name it, uh, hotels, your whole impression is based upon uh, the frontline people. Yeah, it may be a beautiful Hilton hotel, but if you got to wait in line 30 minutes to check in, mm -hmm. I'm not coming back there. So, uh, you know, they and they create bureaucracy for people. They create controllers. So I, I, I really believe that we need to flip the organization upside down, as I say, invert the organization pyramid and put the frontline employees first and then say, everyone else, our job is to support the frontline. They're the ones trying to do it. They're the ones on the production line at Medtronic and they make a difference in the quality, not the quality departments collecting data. It's a frontline of people. And the engineers are doing the breakthroughs. We had serial entrepreneurs at Medtronic inventors. The worst thing I could do is make them vice president of engineering because they're such a great inventor. <clears throat> you would literally kill them if you did that. You know, same with the salespeople. They were out with the doctors. They were the ones making the difference. That's, that makes a lot of sense. And that points to another thing that happened. You couldn't have a career as a salesperson at that time in the company. If you were a really good salesperson, the only career you could have was to get promoted to be a store manager. But if you just loved dealing with the customers, you couldn't really make a, a, a living for a long period to do that. And so they started looking at bonuses and structures and things like that. And I feel like that's really smart way to look at it. We did change that at Medtronic. We had, actually, it happened before I got there, we had a dual ladder for all the technical people. Even to the point, you got a member of the Bakken Society named after our founder. But these are the people that really wanted to just be techies and they did not want to go into management. And you probably would have killed them if you hadn't shut down their creativity. We did the same thing with senior salespeople. You could make a lot of money at Medtronic if you had a big share of your market and really great relationship with your customers. And maybe you didn't want to be, a, you know, a, a district manager or sales. Some people do, but I'm just saying you got to divide who are the great. And I think a lot of companies have missed that. They really have. Yeah. You mentioned the time in meetings and you said 75% of the time in meetings. And sometimes I feel like it might be more. But the, the problem with that is with remote work. I don't. I haven't really seen anyone figure it out yet, how to lead a team that's remote. It's very difficult to do. Yeah, yes. And, uh, you know, remote work doesn't mean fewer meetings. I know people that are sitting at home and have a meeting every hour and right on the hour, bing, 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 bing. 
eight, nine hours, you got Zoom fatigue, <laughs> you know, trying to look at this camera instead of looking down at you speaking. And uh, so, yeah, we found in a study at Harvard for CEOs, I'm talking about large companies, 72% of the time in meetings. You know how much time they spend with employees? 5%. Mm. 5%. You know how much time they spend with customers? 3%. This is all, all worked out in great detail. Isn't that shocking? That's totally shocking to me. And they were shocked, but you know, look how you spend your time. So how productive is that really? All this time spent in meetings. Uh, again, I learned more just wandering around talking to people. Hey, sorry to interrupt the podcast, but if you're like me, you're probably staring at your computer, TV, phone, or other screens for a quarter of your day, or maybe more. At the end of the day, my eyes are often a bit dry, tired, and needing to take a break. That's why my friends at Fortify invented Fortify Focus. Fortify Focus is an evidence-based supplement to revive, rejuvenate, refresh, and protect your eyes from the damaging blue light emitted by digital screens. We talked about this product, Fortify, and what you can do to help your eyes and your body be healthy on my podcast with Dr. Michael Lang and Karen Hecht at quandal.com fortify. Fortify's products are carefully formulated with your complete eye and body health in mind. Check out Fortify Focus and their other products on Amazon and on their website, fortify.com. That's F-O-R-T-I-F-I-E-Y-E.com. Fortify Focus by Fortify. Check it out. And you haven't stopped doing that. Even at Harvard, you still spend a lot of time outside the classroom just speaking with students and hearing what's actually going on. What, was that something you had a leader that showed you early on to spend more time with the employees and the customers? Or was that just something you knew? How did you do that? It's what I enjoy doing. Yeah, I'm, not a, I'm not a pure academic. I just kind of, as I say, a warmed over business guy. has been in business 33 years. But no, I'd much rather spend time with students talking about their hopes and dreams. They come to my class. They don't talk about, gee, how can I get a better grade in your class? It's more about what they want to do with their lives and careers. And exactly the question you're asking. Look, my wife's got a good job or my husband's got a good job and we want to have kids. Can we have a, a good life with two careers? How's this going to work? And so we talk about that kind of thing all the time or how do I move forward and uh, fulfill my career ambitions, still have a good life. And so that's what they want to talk about. Again, they don't want to talk about the course. And uh, I think that's great. That's why I'm there. I'm not there just to you know, do academic papers with uh, other pure academics. I admire them, but that's not my deal. Mm -hmm. And you, are, you're, they're asking you those questions, one, because you're available for them to do it, yeah. but two, because they know you actually did it. And that was another theme that ran through your book was your integrity slash your trust and authenticity. And that's so important for a leader. And it's something I feel like you either have it or you don't. It's really hard to learn, isn't it? Well, no, I think you can learn not integrity. No, you don't have integrity. Look at Zuckerberg. But anyway, um, no, I think trust though you build, it's not automatic. And I had to learn that early on because, you know, I was too focused on the resume, if you will, when I was in college and uh, immediately thereafter. And I had to overcome that and say, it's really not about that. It's about relationship. Leadership is all about relationships, authentic relationships, not transactions. Oh, you and I will make a deal and I'll never see you again. That's not a relationship. A relationship is when my wife had breast cancer and I'm feeling really down and scared, who am I going to call? 
Those are the relationships that matter. Who am I going to tell about this and ask for my emotional support as well as hers? You know, those are relationships. So I think you have to build those. I do think that today uh, it's what I call leading with your heart, not just with your head. We put all the emphasis on brilliance, but the best leader certainly is not the smartest person in the room. So I think I had to learn self-awareness and emotional intelligence and and how I felt compassion, but I didn't necessarily show it. I was moving so fast. How do you show, express empathy for people who are really hurting during COVID uh, or right now coming back? You mentioned remote work. I didn't want to ignore that question, though, James. I think that's a really important question because if you think about it, look, if you're strictly programming computers or you're, you know, you're just working at home, writing legal briefs, you probably can do it. But where are you going to get the mentoring as a young person? And uh, how, where does creativity come from? I think creativity today is not about you're a genius thinking up a genius idea. I think it's the interaction, people with some different backgrounds, different perspectives. Like you asked earlier about when I went to Medtronic, I didn't know anything about medicine. I teamed up with a brilliant medical doctor who turned out to have promoted him to vice chairman. And uh, he was my partner. And I didn't look at him as subordinate because I leaned on him heavily for all the technical stuff. So you started to surround yourself. But I think having compassion and empathy for your customers and your people and uh, qualities like that, they're qualities of heart. Having the courage to make bold decisions. And that, uh, that to me is you learn those things through actually doing it, actually being out there and, and actually leading and maybe stubbing your toe a little bit, but learning uh, firsthand how to do it. I don't love remote work. <laughs> but I love the flexibility it gives me. Yeah. And so it's right. tough because I agree with you that creativity actually a lot of times comes from just being locked in a room with someone you trust for a long period of time. And maybe even someone you don't trust. Maybe you're just at the water cool and you're like, oh, this problem is really bugging me. And the tech guy walks by. Oh, what's the problem? Let's go look at it right now. That's really hard to recreate remotely. It can be done, but it takes so much more deliberate effort than when it just happens naturally in an office. Well, I've gone from teaching online to teaching in person. I've done a lot of seminars for corporations where they bring their team together. Hadn't been together for two years. The energy is incredible. We were so happy to be back together. It's like a different world. So I think uh, I think the future is not remote work. It's flexible work. You know, do you want to go take that walk? If you need to go to your kid's uh, parent-teacher uh, evaluation. Uh, you need to get something done. You do it. And uh, but it's it's looking at people, all people as professionals. Now, look, if you're running a production line, you need to have people there. If you're running a store. You have to have people in that store. You can't uh, be a Best Buy salesman remotely very easily. Some people are, by the way. But uh, but I think you need to uh, you, we need to rethink the nature of work and make it more flexible. But if there's a really creative meeting come together, I think you'll get more out of it if you're there in person. And, uh, and, and frankly, when the promotions come up to, for people, the people that are there are the ones who are going to get them. So, but let me take a riff on another thought that's been very popular in the media lately that I really detest. It's called quiet quitting. Oh, yes. I know all about this because, uh, and let me just guess what you're saying. You can correct me. It's employees that are dissatisfied with their work and they just disappear. They, they just quit. They don't even tell the, the, the team what they didn't like because they know it's not going to make a difference. And so they just leave and go get a new job. Is that No, no. It's they actually stay on the job, do the minimal amount possible, make sure they don't get caught. 
And oh uh, yes, and I say if you hate your job, life is too short. Just go ahead and quit, and find you know, sit out on the beach for a while and decide what it is you want to do with your life. Maybe you want to go a whole different field. Maybe you want to go back to school. I don't know. Maybe you want to find a job with a company that matters. But uh, I think the worst thing you can do is stay in a job you dislike. It's not only bad for the company, it's bad for the people because I think it drains your soul to have a job where you feel like I'm a I'm intentionally being a slacker. I'm going to the minimum amount possible, and I'm not going to talk to anyone. No. Anyway. <laughs> That's ethically wrong, too. I, to, to not do your best work yeah. because you don't like the organization, that's an ethics issue for me. You should be doing your best work, and if you don't like your boss, I always made a joke at Best Buy, and it, I still think it's true everywhere. If you don't like your boss, chances are in six to 12 months, they probably won't be there anymore because they don't last. Like if someone's not a good boss and you don't like them, typically they move somewhere else. And because people know, like people know the leaders that aren't great. I had one of my students call me, working for a great pharmaceutical company called J&J, really a great company. And he had a boss who was just driving him nuts, took credit for all of his work, shut him down, pigeonholed him. And uh, he said, I, I'm just going to leave. I said, no, wait a minute. Don't leave. This is a big company. There are other places in J&J go to work. You can find a different manager or something. He called me back two weeks later and said, well, she just got fired. <laughs> so they caught up with her, you know? So you're right. Uh, and so if it's a good company, not all companies are good. And that raises another issue. Why do we tolerate toxic leaders? Who wants to work for a toxic leader? Why do we tolerate them? Oh, they, they make the numbers. Really? Probably they're taking credit for what their people did. And, uh, you know, and meanwhile, they're running people out. They have 40% turnover rate in their department because they're so brutal to work for. I worked for a couple of people like that in two companies. And I said, man, life was miserable. I felt like James, I put on the armor every day to go to work. So mm -hmm. my boss can't lay a glove on me. You know, that's a horrible way to feel. My wife ran a nursing home up until last year when she left and came home and started working with our family business. And she had a boss, this was many years ago, that was one of those bosses that would basically, on purpose, holding her back, it, you would call it a hostile work environment. So she loved the organization, loved her job, loved the people that she was taking care of. So what did she do? She told her boss's boss, the HR team, and she told them what was going on with examples it turned into an even worse environment of retaliation. And I think that's really? why, oh, it got really bad. She had to quit. And oh needless to say, that, that manager, not a leader, I'll call them a manager, they've now gone and worked at seven other buildings because they keep you know, losing the job or getting fired or having to leave. But I think that's what scares people from standing up for themselves in yeah. those situations because she would come home crying. And I'd That's be like, this terrible. is not worth it. Just leave. Like, this is not worth it. But she cared so much about the residents and her facility, she didn't want to just quit. Because she said, if I'm not there, who's going to look out for their best interests? Yeah. Well, I talk about this in my book, but I think the important thing is that everyone's getting honest feedback. And uh, I believe in 360 reviews. So I made a couple mistakes when I went to Medtronic promoting people that were like that. And because they look good to me. And then I decided I'm not doing that again. So I wouldn't promote anyone until I had really good information about how they were seen by their subordinates and their peers. They couldn't work with anyone. They were just trying to eat, you know, elbow everyone out of the way. Uh, and until we had 360 data, 
on how their subordinates and peers saw him, I wouldn't promote him. And wow. so that became a really valuable tool. And I think for those of us listening, you know, those people listening in as leaders, uh, it's the best tool you can get. It's hard to see yourself other see. It's one thing to try and fresh your boss. Another thing, there are people that see you every day, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so how are you coming across? And those are the most transformative. My uh, co-author, Zach Layton, had one of those experiences. We thought he was doing great, and he went to outside seminar, and he got feedback from all his people that went to this filled in information of the summary. He said he came out of the 19th percentile. He was a little shocked. And uh, he really had to rethink his whole leadership approach. Hey, that's a good thing. It doesn't mean you can't make it, but uh, you learn from it. Well, you, I, mean, I read that in the book, and my thought for Zach when I was reading that was, you are already so much closer to gaining their trust by just asking. Yeah. Now, whether you retaliate or whether you take it and accept it, that's your choice. But how you where you go forward from that point is key. Because if you ask for feedback and then you ignore it, that's almost worse than not asking. That is worse. I tried to start every performance view I had was, James, how am I doing? You know, and what can I do to be help you become more effective and uh, you know give me some feedback? Okay, now I'll give you some feedback. And I started every performance view that way because I needed the feedback. Sometimes I couldn't see what I was doing wrong, and you know I. Maybe to make a lot of mistakes that way. That's really cool. And I think people generally know, in thinking of a performance review conversation, they not only know what they don't like about their leaders, but they also know where they stand and how good they're doing. It was one of my best practices when doing performance reviews. I would say, well, where do you think you are on this? Yeah. And yeah. if our but numbers lined up, great. They just told me the number for themselves, right? Versus me going and saying, hey, here's where you are. <laughs> so I think that's great. And um, as far as you, you mentioned it a couple times in our conversation, promoting people without a 360 or in the book, you talked about leaders who weren't necessarily ethical. Is the 360 survey the way you figure that out? Or is there another way to determine if you can trust them as a leader before you promote them? Well, I, I think that's the best way to find out from subordinate <clears throat> and uh, you know, ethical is not just extreme, black and white. It There's a lot of gray areas. And people who work with people every day kind of know who's going to cut corners to make the number, who's going to do this, who might cheat just a little to get a hit. Once you start that pattern, you know, you're you're heading for trouble. And that's where you can kind of, you can see it. You 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 try to, so it's hard when you're on the very top, it's hard to see those things. You know, sometimes looking at the wrong things. If you're not spending a lot of time with your people, not just in meetings, but getting known personally, you're not going to understand how they operate. And so, I, like I say, I made that mistake. We had a new, newly appointed president of Europe, and then six months later, I found he's running a bribery fund for Italian doctors. And so he, it was easy for me to fire him, by the way. The hard, point, hard part was going back to the top management, executive committee, board of directors, and saying, I didn't check out his value. That he didn't change. You've got to look at me. I made the mistake. So I'm not going to do that again. What would you, from that experience, how did you start evaluating promotions differently? Well, again, I asked Human Resources to get me data, and I did 360s on everyone. I know when Paul Pomek, hey, Unilever, feature him, the, he had, he had in-depth psychological evaluations at 360s on his top 200 people. Wow. And it gave him a whole, because he was new to the company, it gave him a whole new look. It wasn't like to get rid of people, it was more to help them. 
say, here's, here's what you can do. You know, here's how you need to improve. I, I do want to talk about compartmentalizing your life and having a work self, a home self, a church self, and a community self. I sometimes feel like I'm doing that. And it may be because I have so many passions and interests and hobbies and no one really knows what I do for a living, or it may just be that I haven't blended them all. What, what, what is that mean? Like, why is it important to be, I guess, oh man, I'm, I'm realizing the answer to my own question, but why did you talk about that? Why was that important? Well, I, I was that person back when I was in my mid thirties and I had, you know, one approach, I was a rising up and coming fast executive running a business growing 50% a year in microwave ovens at home. I was a different kind of guy, I get down the floor and play with my kids and the community. Uh, I had friends that were very natural. On the other hand, I was getting appointed to various community organizations and trying to be the man, you know, and it wasn't who I was. And I just decided I went to an offsite seminar. I just had to knock down all the walls and say, hey, it's one life. And so I asked people in the classroom, can you be the same person at work and at home? Oh, no, I would never do that. Well, that's not a very good way to live, you know, because people, those walls are permeable right now. We're, when we're doing Zoom, we see little kitties running around in the back <laughs> and we see people's bedrooms or, you know, those, those things that kind of merge. But I think it should emerge a long time ago. Let's just be the same person. And by the way, you know, that was back in the day when everyone's trying to impress everyone, with, you know, how impressive they are, how they dress and all that. I get caught up a little bit in that too. You know, why? Who cares? You know what I mean? Why does it matter? You know what I mean? Do I have to wear a tie? Do you have to, you know, get all dressed up to do this interview? Why? You know, let's just be real. Yeah. You, you mentioned in the book a, a case study of a CEO that had a $300,000 car, I think it was, and they would pick up employees and have chats and then just like open the door and say, all right, our conversation's over. And I'm like, I feel like that's someone trying to impress versus trying to be authentic and engage and have a relationship. Yeah, that was Adam Newman who founded WeWork. And there are fun spaces he created, but he was total uh, phony and you'd never want to work with him, you know? And so, you know, unfortunately, some people get too caught up in their own glory. It kind of feels like in my space of having this podcast and being a writer and sharing a lot of stories that people are idolizing these leaders, though, these leaders that made a huge name for themselves on the backs of other people. The media is idolizing them. And you're right. And you go back and study Mark Zuckerberg's history and how he, you know, took the things from the Winklevoss brothers and then he frankly screwed his uh, CFO, who had father had funded his entire business and uh, found a way to reduce his uh, ownership by a, a factor of 100 to 1 and, uh, you know, set up a, something that's not ethical. And, you know, it's right. I don't think it's ethical, James, to take all your personal information and sell it to someone else. I mean, I just you can say, well, you're giving your free site. Yeah, but I didn't sign on to that. If I want to sign on and say, okay, I will opt in to you using my information, fine. But if there's no clear, I have to go to page 24 of some regulations to figure that out. So I think that does a lot of damage. And I think, unfortunately, that's why a lot of people are leaving Facebook because they didn't create that kind of trustworthy side. If you don't keep trust between people one-to-one, and yeah, it's easier to create trust one-to-one in person than remotely. If you don't create that kind of trust, you're not going to be a good leader. So I hope everyone on this podcast will really focus on why would people trust me? Am I trustworthy? Am I worthy of that trust that you're giving me? Because if I'm not, then I need to rethink my life. There's been so much that have changed in the last just four years or 10 years in work. 
and how we look at work. And it's so much more about our identity where we want to work for companies that we actually believe in and that we'd be proud to tell our friends that we work at. And I think that's really good. Um, but sometimes I wonder if we're spending so much time on the mission and the purpose and not on the actual work, the, the, the actual job. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just seeing I, I hear this phrase a lot from my entrepreneurs, friends that have small businesses and they go, oh, we hire for culture first and we can teach the other stuff. But sometimes like you can't teach hard work and I don't know, I, I'm struggling with it. Well, I think, you know, Medtronic, let's go to that. In Medtronic, our mission, restore people to full life and health by alleviating pain, restoring life and extending life, restoring health and extending life. You know, I told people, if it doesn't excite you, then go go somewhere else. Go to Merrill Lynch and trade stocks in the Merrill Lynch office. Uh, this is exciting work. And uh, if you're not excited about it, you're in the wrong place. But if you are excited about it, you'll never have a better career. You're helping people. So I think it's the leadership's job to inspire people around that purpose, that mission, and to help them understand why values are important, why you can't pay bribes in Russia or India. You know, it's really important that you have those standards and that you set those standards. But at the same time, if you inspire people, they'll give you what they have. They'll give you their hearts as well as their head. Uh, and so I think that's that can be done. But that's a leadership question. Do you inspire your people? Yeah. To really engage in the business and give you all they've got. I don't mean by all they've got by sacrificing your life. Don't misinterpret that. But they'll give you their hearts, their spirit, their concerns, as well as just their pure brain power. That's so true. And I think for me, it's more than just having unlimited PTO and a cool break room yeah. with unlimited candies. Like that's neat, but inspiration is different. That stuff wears off. Okay. What doesn't wear off is, you know, I have a friend who was vice chairman of the largest bank up here. And, and uh, you know, he created a whole thing in COVID of just calling customers. How could we help you? I know it's a tough time and made 1.4 million calls. And actually, the people who got the most out of that were his people that were working as, in the bank, even though the branches were shut down. They got the most out of that because they felt like, I'm really helping someone. Yeah, they don't have a college fund. Or I can help them get a mortgage on a little bit better house. They're in an apartment now and they want to get a house. And so they felt most rewarded for that. So I think that's where it comes from. But leaders need to understand our job is to inspire people. See, if we inspire people, we're not doing the work for them. We're inspiring them because they get so excited about the purpose and what we're trying to get done here. And I mentioned banking because it doesn't have to be in healthcare. I mean, healthcare seems obvious, but banking's less obvious. There was an excellent book that came out, I don't know what year, but it was called The Dream Manager. And it made the, I'm sure it went around um, Minnesota because it came through Best Buy. And that was what it was about. It was about knowing not only people's professional goals, but what were their personal goals? And could mm -hmm. you, as a leader, help them achieve them? Because if you could, you would have a loyal person who would go through walls for the, for the organization. And that, to me, was the best form of leadership you could have. And that's what leaders should do. And I hope every person on this call who aspires to be a leader will think about that. Just what you said. How do you inspire people enough to go through walls for the organization? What is it about? It's not just about making money. Yeah, because money is, I don't want to say this, that money's easy to make, but money, once you have money, you realize money is not what's going to actually make you enjoy your job anymore. It's about doing something with purpose and meaning and, and performing good work. I am curious. I've been hearing a lot of businesses now 
in HR departments not requiring bachelor's degrees for positions like they kind of were before. I actually, one of my first retail jobs, I capped out on where I could go because I didn't have a bachelor's degree. I was training new managers who had them, but I didn't have one so they wouldn't promote me any further. It was just a company rule. And I don't know. What, what do you think about that change? You're getting into a big subject here. We have diminished the lives of people that don't have college degrees. We've pushed a lot of people through college that don't want to be there. I don't like sitting in a classroom. That's not what I love to do. Hey, what I'd love to do is working in a shop, and I'd love to be a carpenter, or I'd like to be a computer jock and uh, program computers. I don't need a college degree to do that. You know, you can you can figure this out or be a computer repair person. I And so I think we pushed an awful lot of people to four-year colleges, come out with a history major, nothing against history, but they don't have any skills. And I'd much rather see somebody that maybe did a couple of years of both tech and uh, learn how to become a welder makes 150 grand a year, practically right out of, out of school. And, uh, or, you know, we, I've seen master carpenters, they're work, they're artists, man. And, uh, and we have an electrician that helps us come to our house. We couldn't survive without him. I don't know anything about the electrical system, in our house, he does. And he doesn't have a college degree. So I think we put too much emphasis on this and we've harmed a lot of people. That's part of the anger in the country is we diminish those lives. I think we ought to pay people a lot more on the front line. And maybe we should pay the middle management and, and, and consultants a lot less. I can get behind that. I dropped out of college twice. I tried twice and I said, you know what? I'm learning way more in retail running a store than I am in this classroom. And I've since wrote leadership articles, interviewed some of the best leaders and, and most brightest leaders in the country on my podcast, and I don't have a college degree. That shouldn't be allowed, right? <laughs> no, I, I think this has been a very bad thing. And the economists come out with these studies, you'll make more money if a college degree and all this. I think we have really diminished the lives of people who are doing the work. And so I would hope when you're running a store, you're really thinking about the lives of the people there and how you can make it better and how you can turn them into top people. Because they're so good with customers that, you know, and you can pay them a nice commission or whatever you, however you compensate them, because they're so good with customers. And uh, I think those rewards need to be there. Hey, the people that made Medtronic products go were not, were the people on the production lines that cared so much that they were never going to have an effective product. They were like artists making mm -hmm. a heart valve, I can tell you. I love that. I think it's a fantastic change in the workplace in America to be less prescriptive on requirements for jobs and instead yeah. look for people who can do the work and have a heart for the work. And I think that will be our next resurgence in quality work in this country. I was, I'm an engineer from Georgia Tech. I was back at the President's Advisory Board on Friday. And the question came up, our admissions are across the country. So, well, Georgia Tech, they're going up. We can say across the country, admissions are falling rapidly. College applications I've done by falling rapidly. Because a lot of people have gotten to, I really want a 40 year degree, why? And this is happening nationwide. Maybe people are waking up to this. We're not providing real value in our institution. Frankly, I think there's real value in a lot of the uh, Votex and the Germans do a better job than, than anyone of the apprentice system. Why not? Why not? How do I learn to become a master carpenter? I learned from a better carpenter. Just like my son is a surgeon, he learns from a better surgeon. And that's where he gets his training. And that's pretty close to the same thing as being a welder, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, but we should reward these people more. That's my point. And we should give them both explicit financial rewards and intrinsic rewards, you know? 
And my my final thought on that, and then I'll, I'll make sure you have a chance to kind of tell us what you're up to next and tell us where we can find your book. But my last thought on that is just make them not feel like they're lesser people for not having gone to college. I, I know deep down in my soul, I still feel a little like less of a leader because I never got a four-year degree, even though I know it's not true. But that's just a cultural thing, and we really need to end that. So I've seen a lot of companies that didn't spend the money upgrading their workforce, didn't teach them new skills, didn't take the people that had been there 10, 20, 30 years that really knew the business. And then the next thing they lay them off and send the business to China or Mexico <sighs> because they don't. And instead, we should be upgrading our workforce. You know, it, it's high tech work out there. It's complex work. I can tell you most of the assembly is not is very complex. Running robots or <laughs> complex <laughs> assembly equipment is very complex. And you need to upgrade people. So, yeah, this is kind of a riff for me as I feel very strongly about this, as you could probably tell. Well, next time we chat, we'll go more in depth on it because I Good. have a lot to say on it myself. And I've been there. And um, so and I'm, I'm still fighting the inner battle with it. I hate this less than you're not less than you're doing fantastic things. You've achieved great success. Let's we need to strike that out. OK, uh, of our you know, our vocabulary and mentality. I'm not trying to tell you how to run your life, but that's what I said. As a society, we need to overcome that. We don't have blue collar and white collar. I mean, we got to overcome that, you know? Yeah, I agree 100%. So this book was really great. And um, what are you working on next and where can we find it? And, and if someone's listening to this and they're really inspired and they're just hearing about you for the first time, where should they go? Well, I'm just doing a lot of session seminars. Got one coming up for a couple of big companies this week. Uh, my whole goal is to have better leaders out there because I think better leaders get rid of the toxic leaders. They have companies that are working for a purpose. So I've got to keep going on this and the book just becomes a good vehicle. But people have to read it because I think it's an introspective process. You go through it, there are exercises in the back and you respond to those. And you think about not just the story that I read, but well, how does that apply to me? Does that apply to me? And so that's what I hope everyone will do. So I'm really encouraging that you can get it. I can get it overnight at Amazon. You can go into Barnes and Noble store and get it. It's pretty easy to get. It's not hard to find. Porchlight, other places have good discounts. But the important thing is take it and you can't read it in one city. Just take it and work through it and think about your how you can become a better person, a better leader. Because I think there's not much difference. And I'll encourage the listeners that are hearing about this and understanding a lot of time we spent in this conversation today was about stuff that's not work related. Because this book teaches you to be a leader, not just in work, but also at home and yeah. in your community. And that is what we need is leaders in all areas, not just in big companies. So this book's really great for that. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show today. This was a lot of fun. Thanks to you, James. You're terrific. Great talking to you. Hope we can reconnect sometime soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of The James Quandall Show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. See you next time.